Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you today. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. I'd like you to think about some things as we begin the sermon today. What does God require of us today? What are our responsibilities as we see a world that is beginning to come apart at the seams? Whenever we see the Middle East beginning to burst into flames, when we live in a world that is filled with terrorism, as we see anti-Americanism growing around the world, many people get anxious. But what are we going to be held accountable for by God whenever we see things beginning to come apart? When we see a scenario developing that looks like the end of the world is imminent, what are we going to be held accountable for by God as Christians? What is he going to be looking for in us as young people, as adults, as senior citizens? The Iraqis have indicated they have a plan if they are attacked by the United States or Britain or some of the allies. That plan is entitled Judgment Day. And they have a graduated response that they are planning to implement. And one of them indicated that the last stage of that plan could lead to World War III. And they actually welcome the chance to challenge the West. God also has a plan. And there is a Judgment Day coming, a time in which we are going to have to be accountable for our actions, for our words, for our deeds. God is a God of love, and he has told us in his word what we're going to be held accountable for. What I would like to do in the sermon today is to go through what the Bible reveals about our responsibilities as Christians. In a world that is coming apart, we can get all panicked, we can do various things, but we have to stay focused, brethren, on what is coming ahead. We need to be focus on the fact that there is a judgment coming and we can't afford to get rattled by events that happen in the world. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24 just to notice something. Jesus was discussing in this passage of Scripture with his disciples about the end of the age and he was encouraging them, also telling them, helping them to focus on what's important. Again, many people tend to panic and will panic as they see the world coming apart in the years ahead. But here is Jesus Christ's advice to his own disciples. In verse 3 of Matthew 24, the disciples said, Tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming, and how will we know we are approaching the end of the age? And Jesus answered. He didn't dodge the subject. He answered very directly. He said, Take heed that no one deceives you, because many will come in my name. There will be many people running around claiming to be Christians, claiming to be ministers of Jesus Christ, getting people all excited. He says, many will come in my name, and he said, they will deceive many people. They'll deceive many people. We have to be careful we are not deceived. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and that's exactly what we're hearing about today. See that you be not troubled, he said. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Jesus said things are going to get worse. But essentially what he was saying is don't panic. Don't panic. God has a plan and God has a purpose. These are things we need to keep in mind as we see the world coming apart in the days ahead. What is it, though, that God is going to hold us responsible for? because there is a judgment day coming in the plan of God. What are we going to be held accountable for as Christians, as young people, as adults, and as seniors? I've entitled the sermon today, Our Responsibilities. Our Responsibilities. What are our our responsibilities today as Christians? Let's look at what the Bible has to say about this subject so that we can be ready for the judgment day that is going to come. If you would, turn back to the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived. Solomon tried everything. 
He built homes. He had wives. He had possessions. He tried everything that life had to offer, and he found that all of these things were like striving after wind because once you accumulate these things, it doesn't produce lasting happiness. Solomon actually became a candidate for suicide because he realized how empty this physical life is and was at his time. But at the end of the book, Solomon comes to a conclusion that he reveals to us. And God has inspired this and preserved this in his word. At the end of his life, Solomon came to this conclusion. In verse 3, it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, here is the most important thing in life. He said, fear God and keep his commandments. Realize that God is real, that he does have a plan and a purpose, that he has a way of life that's mapped out in his word. And Solomon says, fear God, respect God, honor God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of human beings. This is the real purpose of human life. For God will bring every work into judgment. There is a judgment coming, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Solomon is giving us a key here of how to live our lives. He said the most important thing is to learn to fear God, to realize his commandments work, that they're real and that there will be consequences if we disobey those commandments, and there will be rewards if we obey those commandments. So in terms of individual responsibility, one of the things we are going to be held accountable for is learning to fear God and to learning to keep his commandments. Let's notice some other scriptures in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. The prophet Isaiah also reveals what God is looking for and what we are going to be held accountable for. God is a very interesting God. He gives us tests, he gives us quizzes, but he also gives us the answers. And the answers are found in the scriptures. Notice here what Isaiah is saying, what God is looking for. The latter part of verse, in fact, let's start with verse 1. It says, thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne. You look up into the heavens and you see the incredible array of stars and planets that God created. He said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The earth is a unique planet that's spinning out through space that is placed at just the right distance from the sun to create an atmosphere here on earth that we can survive in. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, he says, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. Now, here comes the part of the verse I want to focus on. But on this one, on this person, will I look. God is saying, here is what I am looking for in human beings. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is what God is looking for in you and in me. Now, you might respond, well, I'm poor. I don't have much money in my bank account. Uh, so that's what uh, you know, God's looking for, and I'm qualified on that account. Well, that's not what it's talking about. The word poor means humble. It means lowly. It means depressed or flattened or deflated. You know, if you blow up a balloon and then you prick it with a pin, it goes pssst. And it's deflated. All the hot air is removed. All the vanity is gone. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for people that have been humbled and that are humble, that they're depressed. They're not trying to promote their own uh, advancement. They're not, all in, they're, they're not all excited about their own egos. They're not trying to promote themselves. They're willing to work with God patiently and humbly. So God is looking for humble people. He calls them poor in this verse. Also, he's looking with, for people with a contrite spirit, a broken spirit. People who are repentant. They're sorry for the things that they've learned that they've done is wrong. They're sorry for those things. They have a desire to do better. That's what God is looking for. Then he can mold and fashion those people. 
because they will change. They're no longer trying to prove something to demonstrate how good they are. God is looking for people that have a contrite spirit that he can work with. And the final thing it says, he's looking for individuals who tremble at my word. They'll read the scriptures, they'll desire to understand it, and they'll desire to do it. You know, when someone says, well, you know, I know what the Bible says and I know what the church says, but here's what I think. God can't use a person like that. He can't work with a person like that. They need to tremble at his word. If God says it, I'm going to strive to do it. This is what God is looking for. People that are humble, people that are teachable, people that have a broken spirit. They're repentant. They're willing to change. They're willing to do things God's way and that they tremble at my word. They revere my commandments. They stand in awe of what I say, God says. They don't compromise my teachings. This is what God is looking for. And notice in the, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea also talks about some things that God is looking for. And these first several scriptures are all pretty much focusing in the same direction. And when the Bible repeats various uh, principles, it's important. Because God repeats those things that are important. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Here again, God is making it very plain what he wants to see in us. He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. A person who is merciful is patient. A person who is merciful is understanding. A person who is merciful is forgiving. A person who is merciful doesn't insist on having it his way or her way or judging other people. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You know, back probably several decades ago when various people were demonstrating for freedom and various other things, Some people would actually set themselves on fire and burn themselves up to demonstrate their conviction about a cause or their devotion to some sort of a God. The God of the Bible says, I'm not interested in burnt offerings, people burning themselves up, people blowing themselves up today uh, to demonstrate their uh, dedication to a God or to a religion. God said, I'm not interested in that. I am interested in mercy people that are merciful and treat other people in merciful ways, who have a knowledge of God, that God is a God of love, he's a God of justice, he has a plan and a purpose. This is what God is looking for. He said, I desire mercy. People that are understanding, they're not judgmental, they're not violent, they're forgiving, and that they have a knowledge of God. That is what God is looking for. One final scripture in the uh, book of Micah. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Again, the prophet Micah records what God is looking for. In verse 8 it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? What are we going to be held accountable for? God tells us, What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to treat people honestly, to seek what is right, to do justly, to love mercy. If we love mercy, we will try to be merciful with everyone that we deal with and to walk humbly with your God. If we walk humbly before God, we will be striving to obey the commandments of God. God will see that in our attitude He will see that and others will see that in our actions. Brethren, this is what we are going to be held responsible for. This is the basic. These are the foundations uh, that God wants to build upon. Notice in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus addressed the subject also in giving advice and guidance to his disciples. 
This was at the very beginning of his ministry. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. It says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now many people today will argue and say that we, you know, we can't be perfect. It's impossible. Jesus Christ was the only perfect person. We can't be perfect. The word in the Greek is teleos, teleos, from which we get our word telescope. And it means to be complete, uh, to be mature, uh, to be full grown, uh, to be blameless, to be perfect. That's what it means. That our goal should be to strive to grow, to become complete, to become spiritually mature where we understand the laws of God. We understand how to apply the laws of God. We understand that consequences will come if we don't obey God. And we understand there will be rewards if we learn to obey and properly apply the laws of God. This is what God is looking for in mature Christians, that we strive to become perfect, we become complete. We, we see the whole big picture, and we're learning to act from the right motives. Now, Abraham was told by God to be perfect and walk before him. Jesus told his disciples the same thing. This is an important principle that runs through the Bible, of striving to become perfect, to grow and mature and become complete. So these are things that we can focus on, brethren, as individuals. These are the bottom line, or this is the bottom line, that God is looking for. Let's notice some other principles we need to become spirit-led Christians if we're going to pass the judgment that is coming in the future. Notice in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. You know, Paul was again summarizing what is important for Christians. He's describing what God is going to be looking for. Paul mentions here, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, I have buried my old self. I've repented of my old ways. I've crucified my old self. I put to, to death the old way I used to think and the old way I used to act. You know, I don't run around anymore. I'm not filled with a lot of vanity, what Paul is saying. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Again, now Jesus is not going to climb inside us, but as we strive to follow his teachings, if we strive to do things as Jesus Christ would do things, you know, there's a saying, and you can buy little wristbands that have this little saying on it, what would Jesus do? When we encounter a situation, we need to think, how would Jesus react in this situation? What principles in the scriptures govern this situation? As we strive to do those things, to think along the lines that are revealed in the scriptures and to act accordingly, Jesus Christ will be able to live his life over within us. And this is what Paul is saying. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm trusting in the advice that God gives me in the Bible. I'm trusting in the advice that Jesus Christ left for us we're living by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me so this is what god is looking for he's looking for individuals who want jesus christ and the teachings of jesus christ and the teachings of scripture to live within them this is what god is looking for notice in john <clears throat> john chapter 15 now, this is in the section of Scripture, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, that records what Jesus discussed with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Jesus was going over the basics of Christianity. He said, this is what I'm going to be looking for. And he reminded the disciples of these things the night before he was crucified. He knew that his death was going to shake them up. You know, the disciples actually got discouraged. Some of them went back to fishing after Jesus Christ died. You know, well, the boss is gone. Now what do we do? It looks like this is all over. Now, Jesus was trying to prepare them 
in this discussion the night before for what was coming. Notice in John 15, verse 1, he said, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And my understanding is that when you grow grapes and grapevines, that unless you prune those grapevines after they've borne grapes in a year, they won't bear any grapes the next year unless they're pruned, unless they're cut back. And if you were the grapevine and somebody starts trimming your branches, you would say, ouch, that hurts. That's not any fun to have branches trimmed off. But Jesus said here that God will prune those even that bear fruit so that they can bear more fruit. Verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. God is looking for specific fruits that we'll see here in just a moment. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them in the fire, and they're burned. You know, we may sit in church every Sabbath. We may go to the holy days, go to the feast. We may tithe. But if we are not bearing the fruit that God is looking for, we're not going to pass the judgment that is coming. And the Bible indicates here, unfruitful branches are trimmed, pruned, thrown away, and burned in the fire. And we don't want that to happen to us. In verse 8, Jesus reveals what God is looking for. It says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. What is it the fruit that God is looking for? What kind of fruit is God looking for? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The fruit that God is looking for is described in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 describes the fruits of the Spirit, but it also describes the works of the flesh. The fruits that God is looking for in us, what we are going to be held accountable for once God gives us his Spirit, are described in verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love an unselfish, outgoing concern, compassion. You care about what's happening to people. Joy, being very thankful for the blessings that you have. You know, some people get very uptight when things don't go their way, and they think, woe is me, you know, God doesn't love me, and things are just terrible, and, you know, I just want to end it all. And yet many of these people have two eyes, they can see, they have two ears, they can hear, they have two hands, two feet, they can walk, they can pick things up, they have a brain that works. You know, we've got to be thankful for these things. We need to be thankful for the truth that we understand. Now, we may be persecuted for what we believe, but sometimes we need to go back and literally exercise the fruit of joy and be thankful for the fact that God has intervened in our lives. God has called us. God is giving us an opportunity to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. You know, sometimes we need to exercise joy whenever we're tempted to think about ourselves and get all morose. Love, joy, peace. We need to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, we need to be learning how to make peace with each other. Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. And when somebody comes up, pokes their finger in our eye and, you know, cuts us off in a traffic line or whatever, our tendency is to, you know, boy, I'm going to get them. No, we've got to be able to respond peacefully, patiently. We've got to control our emotions. We've got to learn to be at peace and how to bring peace between individuals. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth, set up his kingdom and it says he is called the Prince of Peace. He knows how to bring peace. Part of our job is going to bring peace between peoples in a world that is tearing itself apart by war. We need to understand what causes wars and how to get over them. We need to not only be peacemakers, but we need to be at peace with ourselves. 
you know, you might be thinking, well, God didn't make me tall enough. You know, God made me too big. God made me too short. God made me too much this or that. You know, we need to be we need to be at peace with ourselves and at peace with God. When we understand the purpose of human life, that we've been called to become part of God's family, to build the character and perspective of God, it doesn't matter how tall we are, how short we are, how big we are, how small we are. God is working with our minds. We need to understand that. And understanding the purpose of human life and how God works with us should give us a peace of mind that other people can sense. Long-suffering, we need to be patient. And if we're going to build patience, it's going to take some time. And we're going to be impatient various times. We're going to have to struggle to overcome that. God is looking for kindness, kind remarks, kind expressions, kind actions in his future members of his family. Goodness, people that focus on good things. They're not into bad things. Faithfulness, we're faithful with the truth. We're faithful with our word. We're trustworthy. Gentleness, we're not rough in our dealings with people. Look, I'm in charge, you do what you're told. No, God is looking for gentleness, where we need to treat people like we would like to be treated. Self-control. Well, you know, I said that I just wasn't thinking. Well, we need to learn to think. If God gives us power as spirit beings and he comes into your area and half the area is burned up, and you say, well, I just, I just lost my temper. You know, and I called down a lightning storm, and I caused a couple of earthquakes. I was just mad. <laughs> you know, we can't do that. You know, life now is a testing ground for the future, and self-control now in little things will tell God that we can exercise self-control in bigger things. It says, against these things are no law. There is no law. And those who are Christ's, those who are striving to be Christians, have crucified the flesh, just like Paul said in, in uh, Galatians 2.20. They've crucified the flesh. We've put to death our old way of reacting and thinking and acting. They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, if we're led by God's Spirit, if we're striving to exercise the fruits of God's Spirit, it says, let us walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. How do you provoke one another? Well, you strive for position. You strive to get ahead of others. You strive for more notoriety, to be appointed to a higher level. And other people react negatively to that because they recognize the vanity in the whole thing. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, the fruits that God is not looking for, and yet if we are products of the world, which we are, these are the tendencies we're all going to have, and we're going to have to wrestle against these things and overcome them if we're going to be accountable in a proper way. Beginning in verse 18, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the penalty of the law. We're not going to have to deal with the consequences of laws that we break if we're led by the Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, evident, which are adultery. You know, having sex with someone other than your wife. Fornication, again, sex outside marriage. Uncleanness, licentiousness. These are talking about sexual sins. So we can't do these things. We, can't, we cannot entertain those thoughts. We've got to get rid of those things. Idolatry. Now, again, most of us don't have big, uh, glaring pagan idols in our front yard. But we might have a big car that we can't afford. We might be tempted to buy clothes and other things that we can't afford. You know, whatever we serve is our idol in that sense. It might be uh, uh, someone you're seeking to marry. And they're the most important thing in your life, more important than God. A number of things become idols. Sorcery, where we begin to play around with the occult. And those interested in the occult, those numbers are growing today. You know, these Harry Potter films and uh, a TV series about witches that glamorize this whole subject of the occult. We're living in a modern 20th century, 21st century, and yet people are dipping back into the occult because they're finding that modern mainstream Christianity doesn't answer the questions that they have. And people think it's no big deal to play around with the occult. 
And yet we're playing around with very serious powers. And God says, don't get involved with that. He doesn't want to see hatred and contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath in people that hope to become members of his family. These are all things we've got to overcome. Dissensions and heresies. Now, people will spawn these things and promote these things. Well, I know what the minister said, but, you know, I, I've got different ideas. I have my own ideas. You know, why should we trust these men at headquarters? You know, who are they? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about these attitudes. God doesn't want to see uh, dissensions and heresies and factions. You know, I've got my own little work over here. I've ordained myself as an apostle. I've ordained myself as a prophet. Uh, we can't be doing those things because it only leads to factions and divisions. Verse 21, he doesn't want to see envying. Well, how come he got ordained or she got ordained? And, you know, I'm better than they are. I've been around longer than they have. You know, I deserve this or that. God says, I don't want to see envyings, murders. Again, Jesus defines uh, murder in a much broader term than what we think of. We think of murder as killing. But in Matthew 5, it talks about there, if we hate someone, if we cut down someone, if we spread rumors about someone, it's the same as murder. It's a spiritual murder. Drunkenness. And unfortunately, even people in the church have problems with these things. You know, well, I didn't mean to drink as much as I did, but I did, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry. But, you know, sometimes we're good at apologizing and not very good at changing. These are things we need to change. Revelries, parties, you tie one on and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a judgment coming. You know, we need to be making changes in our lives and striving to live by every word of God because we're going to be held accountable for these things. If we're going to exercise the fruits of God's Spirit, we need to receive God's Spirit. How do we do that? Turn back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. You know, we can't go out and buy God's Spirit. We don't imbibe God's Spirit just by attending church. There are things that we have to do. In Acts chapter 2, we find a description of what happened on the first Pentecost, whenever the Holy Spirit was poured out on people. Many of the Jews who were gathered around and other Israelites that were in Jerusalem for the Holy Day realized that Jesus Christ had been murdered. He was resurrected. Now God had poured out his spirit in a very dramatic fashion on those that were gathered here. Many people wanted to become part of what they understood what was happening. After Peter's sermon, in which he said, you know, you've killed the Messiah, you've killed the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was prophesied to come, in verse 37 it says, now when they heard this, Peter's preaching and explaining what was happening, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? We would like to be part of this. How can we become part of this? How can we be in this kingdom of God that you're talking about? Then Peter said to them, now notice he didn't say, just give your heart to the Lord and everything will be fine. He said, repent, change your life. Begin to get your life in harmony with the laws of God. Begin to live by every word of God. Get rid of your rebellious attitudes. Well, they can't tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. Peter said, repent, get rid of those attitudes. Then let every one of you be baptized. You know, when we're baptized, we make a commitment. We ask God to forgive our sins that we are sorry for, truly sorry for. And then we ask God to give us his spirit, to grant us that spirit. And then we will have a responsibility of nourishing and exercising and being led by that spirit. This is what Peter's saying. He says, here's the path. Here's the way to go. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized. Make this commitment to live by every word of God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then you shall receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's with that spirit, as we nourish that spirit, as we're willing to be led by that spirit, that will begin to bear the fruits of that spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience. This is the step. This is the plan. This is the way to go. Notice also in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, we're given another key about the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 32, it says, We are his witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit that, is, that God has given to those who obey him. If we want to receive and be led by God's Spirit, we've got to obey God. You know, when we begin to compromise, when we begin to disobey, God will withdraw that spirit. You know, we will quench that spirit. It will die within us if we're not using it, if we're not being led by it, or if we begin to compromise it. We will quench that spirit. The fruits will no longer be there. So we've got to repent, be baptized, make a commitment, then God promises to give us his spirit. As we're led by that spirit, the fruits will become obvious in our life. God will see them. And others will see them and will be able to be lights to the world. This is what God is looking for. But if we don't nourish that spirit, if we're not led by that spirit, if we compromise that spirit, if we don't obey God, he will withdraw that spirit. It will be quenched within us. The fruits will no longer be there. And we're not going to make it through a judgment day. We are going to be held accountable for the gifts that God gives us. It's an exciting opportunity, but it is a serious responsibility. What does all of this mean in a practical way? What are we going to be held accountable for in practical terms? <clears throat> Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. And let's notice a number of scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, Paul addresses the subject of the roles of men and women in marriage, roles of husbands, role of wives. Now, these are God's instructions, and these are things we're going to be held accountable for. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Adapt yourself. You know, subordinate yourself. Work with your husbands as to the Lord. You might think... <laughs> Well, that's a pretty big order. I've got to look to my husband as if he is God. You know, he thinks he is. Uh, but that's not what it's talking about. It's respecting the role that God has designed for husbands. And girls, ladies, you know, don't marry someone who you can't respect. Get to know them before you say, I do. Because if you can't respect them before marriage, it's going to be difficult after marriage. Once you find out all their, their weaknesses and shortcomings and everything else, understand the role that God wants you to play. Wives, submit yourself, adapt yourself, uh, subordinate yourself, cooperate with your husband. Well, you know, he's kind of slow. I need to take charge of these things. It's not going to work. It's not going to work that way. But by the same tokens, fellas, men, realize the role that God wants you to play. You need to strive to be respectable and to be honorable and to treat others mercifully and with respect and understanding. It's a two-way street, but these are things God is looking for. He wants us to learn this now because there are big implications from these lessons. Wives, submit or adapt yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. Now in verse 23, uh, Paul gives a much bigger perspective what this all symbolizes and why we need to learn these lessons in marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. You know, Dr. Meredith is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And God is his head. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, as he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, here's the big picture. So let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything, showing him respect, learning to cooperate. And by the same token, the husband should show love and respect to the wife. 
Now in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Have an unselfish, outgoing concern, a deep respect, a deep appreciation for your wife. And when someone agrees to be your wife, be very thankful for that. Honor that. Don't take advantage of that. And don't be laying burdens on the wife. Look, I told you to do this. You didn't do it. You're not subject to me. We can't treat people like that. Husbands, love your wives. Be sympathetic. Be affectionate. You know, wives need people to talk to them. You can't get up in the morning, read the paper, run off to work, come home, sit down, read the paper, watch television, go to bed. You're going to starve your wife. She needs companionship. These are part of your responsibility. You need to understand that before you get married. And if you learn these things after you're married, then you need to make some changes. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. What do you mean? What did he do giving himself? He gave his life. He died for the church. Would you be willing to die for your wife? Or lay down part of your life for your wife? Husbands, love your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Don't take them for granted. Honor them, respect them, appreciate them, and tell them those things. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, set it apart, make it special, cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. These are our responsibilities as husbands and as wives. We need to understand these things before we go into marriage. Young people especially and older people who may have lost a mate or something, don't rush into marriage uh, suddenly. And don't be carried away by wrong thinking. Well, the end of the world is coming. I better get married. I better do something. No, don't rush into these things. There will be time down the road. You know, if we spend three and a half years in a place of safety, there's going to be plenty of time to get married, even have children there. Just don't rush into things. Don't, don't panic. That was what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Look, these things are going to happen. Don't panic. Don't get bumped off course. Stay focused. Remember what God is going to hold us accountable for. Verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself. And if your wife is hurting, you need to give her the time and the attention that she needs, the encouragement that she needs. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, I know all his weaknesses. He sure isn't God. No, you need to be respectful. He's not perfect, neither are you. And you both need to understand that and give each other a little bit of space, encourage each other, be thankful for the opportunities you have to work together and learn these lessons together. These are things, brethren, we're going to be held accountable for as men, as women, as husbands and wives. What about parents, grandparents? What about children, young people? Chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And you might say, yeah, but my parents are old. You know, they're outdated. Uh, one of my sons, for example, used to kid me a lot. He said, Dad, uh, tell me what it was like in the Civil War. The American Civil War was fought in the 1850s, you know, 100 years ago. I wasn't alive, but he was kind of digging at me a little bit. It says, obey your parents in the Lord. You know, they lived two or three times as long as you have. They probably made mistakes, seen others make mistakes. They probably have a lot of advice that they could give you. Children, obey your parents. Listen to them. Honor them, for this is right. But notice verse 2. It says, honor your father and mother. Respect them. Listen to them. Show them honor, for this is the first commandment with a promise. It's the first commandment with a promise. Young people, I think you'll find if you learn to respect your parents, you give them time and attention, tell them you thank them very much for what they've done for you, they will not be able to do enough for you if you show them this honor and this respect. You give them a bad time, you're going to try their patience, and their patience might wear thin. You'll also miss out on incredible opportunities, incredible blessings that will come. And God will provide them if you honor your parents and you follow this instruction. 
says, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that your life will go well, and that you may live long on this earth. There's going to be blessings that will come by doing it God's way. But notice in verse 4, an admonition to parents. And you fathers and mothers, for that matter, do not provoke your children to wrath. You know, don't come down on them hard. Don't make the laws too strict. You know, don't be too tight. You know, just think about it for a minute. I've seen this happen in church. You know, people bring their kids to church and they want to set a good example. And sometimes they're a bit hard. You know, sit down, shut up, take notes, and enjoy the Sabbath. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> Whenever the Sabbath is linked with sit down, shut up, be quiet, don't do this, don't do that. Sabbath is not going to be joyful. Keep your finger here in Ephesians and turn back to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Here we have some guidelines for keeping the Sabbath. <clears throat> Instructions that are very handy for dealing with children. If you take the principles out of this. And these are things we need to teach our children, both by word and by our example. It's as if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasures, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you, God says, I will bless you, enabling you to ride on the high hills of the earth and to feed with you the heritage of of your father, uh, Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What God is saying is if you make the Sabbath a time of rejoicing, a time to delight, and if we teach this to our children, you know, instead of coming down on your kids hard on the Sabbath, you know, sit down, be quiet, don't move, don't breathe, you know, don't do all these things, they're not going to enjoy the Sabbath. But if you make the Sabbath special, and you know, my wife used to, make a special dinner on Friday night. We'd have candles, have little note cards by everybody's plate. Should ask the boys, you know, what, do you, what would you like special for dinner tonight? And they looked forward to a meal together on the Sabbath. It wasn't, you need to be here. If you're not here, you don't get any food. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't enjoy that. But being asked what would be their own special dish and what would be very exciting and so on, they were excited about the meal on Friday night. When we lived in Pasadena years ago when the boys were little, it was a big arboretum, uh, probably, I don't know, five or ten miles from where we lived. We would go there on Sabbath morning and walk through this very beautiful park and would tell the, the boys about the different kinds of trees from all over the world that were there. There were peacocks walking around free in the park and we'd uh, feed the fish in a little bit of a pond and we'd talk about the Garden of Eden, what the kingdom of God was going to be like. They looked forward to that. And they linked it with the Sabbath. Now, part of the reason we did that in the morning is we had services in the afternoon. And if the boys walked around the park in the morning, they were tired. They were ready to go to sleep during services so we could listen to the sermon. But we tried to make, as the boys grew up, the Sabbath a delight, something very special. They each had a little bag of toys. And the only time they saw them was whenever we went to church. And they were quiet toys that they could play with on the floor when they were little. So it was a very special day. They got to see a bag full of special toys they didn't get to see for the rest of the week. They had a special dinner and we did special things. Jesus said here, if you call the Sabbath a delight, you make it a special day. You don't do your thing. You focus on God's plan and purpose and principles then you'll make that Sabbath a delight and we'll be able to pass these values on to our children in a much more effective way. Okay, back to Ephesians chapter 5 or chapter 6. It says, And you fathers or parents, don't provoke your children. You don't come down on them so hard. You need to give them guidelines. Explain those guidelines. Well, Mom, Dad, why won't you let me do this? Everybody else can do it. I told you we don't do it that way. That's not the way to deal with children. If you say, look, here is why we don't do it. Here are the consequences that you will face if you do things that way. Look over here. 
Watch this person. See what happens when they do things a certain way. See, explain those things to your children, especially as they get older, as teenagers. Explain why they shouldn't do certain things. Explain the blessings that will come if they do things God's way. Fathers, mothers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. You train them, guide them in the admonition of the Lord. Show them the benefits of doing things God's way. These are all guidelines that God gives, and these are things we're going to be held accountable for as Christians. Notice now in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, Servants, if you're an employee, be obedient to those who are your masters. You know, show up on time when work is supposed to start. Don't take off an hour or two early. You show up on Monday morning. I remember uh, talking with an older gentleman in one of our congregations. He was a foreman on a construction job. He said, you know, it's hard to get people to work. They call in sick on Friday. They have a big party over the weekend. They call in sick on Monday because they're dealing with a hangover. He says they may, may get to work on Tuesday, and they'll work Tuesday, Wednesday, and and maybe part of Thursday, then they call on sick on Friday again. It says, servants or employees, be obedient to your masters. Be good examples. Be good employees. Don't uh, serve them with eye service. You, know, you, you try and look busy, but you're not accomplishing anything. Uh, don't do things that way. Down in verse 9, and you masters, those of you that are employers, do the same thing uh, uh, you, you treat your employees like they would like, like you would like to be treated. Giving up threatening. You don't be constantly nosing around and, and working behind their back and uh, not giving them responsibilities or undercutting those responsibilities. Respect them. Treat them as human beings. Show them respect. Show them appreciation. Uh, this is the way that we can be lights and examples to those around us. Let's go to First Timothy now. <clears throat> Because it's not only our families and our employers and employees that we need to be conscious of. In 1 Timothy 3, we find a description of elders and, and deacons, deaconesses. But this is also a job description of Christians. This is what we're going to be held accountable for. You might say, well, it's talking about bishops, but just notice things here in verse 2. A bishop must be blameless. Does that mean that you as an individual Christian shouldn't be blameless? The husband of one wife, a bishop should be. Uh, those of you that are not elders, can you have more than one wife? No, you can't. Temperate, self-controlled, bishops should be that way, elders should be that way, deacons should be that way, so should parents. So should Christians. Sober-minded, serious people not frivolous, not telling silly jokes of good behavior, not questionable behavior, hospitable, you're reaching out to people, being gracious, able to teach. We've all been called to become teachers, kings and priests, able to explain the word of God. Uh, down in verse 7 is what I wanted to focus on. Moreover, he that is an elder... Uh, must have a good testimony among those who are outside. But, you know, we all should be striving to be above reproach. You know, when somebody hears our name, it shouldn't be, oh, 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 I know about him. You know, he goes to church on the Sabbath, but you ought to see what he does through the week. Or, you know, I know her too. She's got quite a reputation. These things should not be, brethren. If we want to be in God's kingdom, we're going to be held accountable for our conduct. And our conduct really needs to be above reproach among those who are outside, those in the community, our neighbors, our relatives, people that we come in contact with when you go to the feast. You know, we're going to be coming in contact with uh, people in hotels, people in restaurants, people in parking lots, people in stores, and they will notice, you know, you didn't give me my money's worth. And my money's important. You know, I've saved it all year. It's my second tithe. Now, we're not going to tell them that. But we might, you know, really get on them if the, if the service isn't up to what we think it should be because they're not treating us like kings and queens. But they're human beings. They don't understand many things. We need to be patient with them. We need to be merciful with them. 
our example is going to be important and we're going to be held accountable for those things. And we need to be careful and be conscious of our example around others. Let's bring this to a conclusion. Let's notice in uh, a couple of scriptures that talk about a judgment that is coming. As I mentioned in the, the beginning, the Iraqis have a plan. If they are attacked, they will institute that plan. They call that plan Judgment Day. Judgment Day. That's a play on words. But God is also going to send Jesus Christ back to this earth. And there will be a judgment day coming. Jesus mentioned this. Paul mentioned this. It's mentioned a number of times in the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, let's start in verse 33. Because it's, it's part of a parable here that Jesus is using to teach a lesson. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruits. A tree is known by its fruits. We will be known by our fruits. This is why Paul had mentioned uh, in Ephesians that God is looking for the fruits of God's spirit. He doesn't want to see the fruits of the flesh. Every tree is known by its fruits, and we will be known by our fruits, our attitudes. You know, are we always lobbying and kind of cut deals so that we can be promoted among others? Are we always trying to to better others, to put down others? Or are we gracious? Are we forgiving? Are we patient? Are we self-controlled? A tree is known by its fruits. Again, Jesus is addressing the, the Pharisees here. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, what we think about, the mouth speaks. You know, if we're constantly trying to promote ourselves, undercut others, criticize others, if we're thinking those thoughts, eventually they're going to come out, especially in an unguarded moment. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, the thoughts of his mind, brings forth good things. But an evil man, Out of the evil treasure, that is what he thinks about, brings forth evil things. Now here comes the warning. But I say to you that for every idle word, every word that you speak, or that men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. God is watching. God sees how we treat people. He understands the motives of our heart. He understands our motives. We may not acknowledge our motives, honestly, sometimes. But God sees. God understands. We'll give account out on the judgment day, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There is a judgment coming. We need to understand that. It's not a bad concept. It's not an evil concept. It's not something we have to worry about, but it is something we need to be concerned about. So that we're striving to do what God wants us to do. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12. Paul repeats the same basic uh, concept. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12. In fact, let's back up here and start in verse 10. It says, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you show contempt for your brother, elevating yourself and putting them down? For we shall stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We better be careful judging others because we are going to be judged before Jesus Christ. Down in verse 12, it says, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We're not going to be able to make excuses. Well, I didn't know, you know, I forgot. These things are not going to cut any ice at that time. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, uh, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Let's not waste any time judging other people. Let's remember the responsibilities that God outlines for us in his word. God has called us to become part of his family. He's opened our minds to understand his plan and purpose. 
He's given us his spirit so that we could begin to understand and begin to apply the instructions that we find in the Bible. God wants to bless us. He wants to give us eternal life. He wants us to reign with Jesus Christ. But before he gives us eternal life, before we're given a position of responsibility in the coming kingdom, we are going to be held accountable for what we know and what we understand. Brethren, let's take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. He's given us the answers to the quiz. He's given us the answers to the test. He's shown us what he's going to be looking for when Jesus Christ comes back to judge this earth. Let's use this information and let's strive to fulfill our responsibilities as Christians, as young people, as adults, and as seniors so that we can be in the coming kingdom of God.